Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. This morning we're going to be finishing up our sermon series that we've been in for the last five weeks. So this is week number six, and our sermon series is entitled Jesus Is... Uh, And we've been looking at the life and ministry of Jesus and looking at it through four points of emphasis or four four, buckets of thought that uh, Foursquare as a denomination uh, has emphasis, and that is Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Baptizer, Jesus is Healer, and then this morning we turn our attention to the last one, Jesus is the soon and coming King. And yes, come Lord Jesus, come And as we consider uh, Jesus as a soon-and-coming king, uh, we end up turning our attention to the return of Christ, and in doing so, we begin to consider concepts and ideas that are lumped into an area of study or an area of study focus that's referred to as eschatology. Uh, That may be a new word for you, but it is uh, kind of a Uh, It's a theological word, it's an academic word, and it has to do with the study of last things. And so if you were uh, pursuing that type of study, you'd be looking at this. And in that, uh, the return of Christ is just a small part of a number of different ideas. So if you were going to study the whole breadth of eschatology, you would start bumping into ideas not just about the return of Jesus, but death in itself. You would would be unpacking that. Some churchy words like rapture, uh, the great tribulation, uh, the millennium, the resurrection, uh, the antichrist. And maybe those are things that you are a little bit familiar with. Maybe those are brand new terms for you. The idea of a final judgment would fall into this as well. And so as you begin to start talking about the return of Jesus, there's all of these other kind of nuanced points of study that fall into the same framework. And I draw your attention to that because if we're not careful, we're tempted to careen down these paths of inquiry that start to tickle our ears, but they don't transform our hearts. We begin to move down towards courses of study to try to really find out what's going to happen and when is that going to take place, but we're not actually embracing the things that bring about transformation in our lives. And at times, we can end up making ourselves look really, really foolish. The first time I survived the end of the world was in 1988, right? In the late 80s, there was a resurgence of interest in a book called The Prophecies. It was written in the 1500s by a man whose name in the Latin ends up being loosely translated as Nostradamus. He was a French um, uh, he, he was a French uh, physician and astrologer, and he was purported to be kind of like a seer. He could tell the future. And so he published this work in the 1500s. It's called The Prophecies. It is a, uh, a work of 942 quatrains. That is a descriptor of a specific type of poetry. So there's 942 poems in this book that are kind of really vague and uh, uh, just loose description of things that could take place. 
and it was purported as being this prophetic book that through different seasons in human history, academics and scholars have gone back and looked at this, and then they've looked about uh, looked at what's been going on in life around them, and they're like, oh my gosh, this guy knew. But it's literally been applied to age after age after age after age, and at different seasons, it becomes this point of focus. And in the light, late 1980s, people got on this, the prophecies trained. And they started unpacking it in the United States. You can actually find media stories in the LA Times that, that would equate some of this, uh, these poetic works to having uh, uh, identified specific uh, earthquakes taking place in California at the time, and there was like this new furor that was taking place, and everybody was like, the end of the world is going to happen. And I remember I was in seventh grade, 1988, and I was like, the end of the world's happening? Like, I haven't even lived my life yet. And it started being a topic of conversation, and you look back now, and you're like, oh man, how did anybody fall for that? But literally, the whole world was falling for this idea, and so was the church. So was the church. There was a well-known published book in 1988, and this was the title, 88 Reasons, Jesus is Coming Back. Yeah, you got it in 1988. And it was something that began to tickle itching ears, and people began to kind of respond in like this fearful approach to what was being suggested here. 300,000 copies of this book were sold across the United States, and many pastors began to preach this mantra from their pulpit only to have 1988 come and go and, well, if Jesus showed up, I missed it. And what's really interesting is the author of that book put out another book the next year, and it, he, he used a, a different title, so it wasn't 89 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 89, but that book su- suggested, nope, it's going to be 1989. And then a few years later, in 1993, he put out another book because that was going to be the year. And then in 1994, he did again. So literally, in that span of years, I survived the end of the world four times. And then people had gradually stopped listening to this author. The next time I survived the end of the world, some of you made it through as well, 2000. Some of you weren't around yet, right? 2000, the end of the world was going to happen. Why? Because we hadn't planned our computers to go past that. And the world couldn't possibly you know, continue to function without computers because it hadn't done the whole previous time period of human history before that, right? And in, in 1999, as we were moving towards New Year's Eve, people were freaking out. And in the United States, we were looking to see if the world was going to collapse in Australia because New Year's happens there first, right? We can at least see it coming as it comes over the horizon, And I know people who didn't go to New Year's Eve parties. They didn't even suggest that they were going to celebrate. They didn't do any of the town fireworks. They were at home waiting for the world to collapse. And I barely made it. Twelve years later, 2012, and it's coming. The Mayans, they saw it on their calendar, right? Popular movie came out. People were freaking out about that. Maybe that caught your attention. And we start thinking, yeah, well, that kind of seems to happen, but, you know, people don't really fall for that. I know of a pastor in Texas who said, no, like, this is it, and had scripture that went for it, preached it from his pulpit. There was an elderly man in his church that was well off who dissolved all of his wealth, gave it all away because it didn't matter, and he was trying to do the most good that he could in the last year that he knew that he could be alive only to be left destitute and in poverty as a result.
when I was in Bible college. I took a class. The class was on end times. It was, on, it was an eschatology class. And I had a professor who we spent a lot of time in the book of Daniel. There's a lot of uh, apoc- uh, apocalyptic, um, prophetic pictures there. The book of Ezekiel, book of Revelation. Okay, some popular places that people would go. They'd be unpacking some of this stuff. We looked at the, the passage that we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 13. We were going through it, and he was kind of digging out kind of the words and the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek, and he was putting out kind of the timelines, and he was showing different things in history up to that point. And he, he got to this place where he kind of worked out this equation, and he said, I'm not going to finish it for you. You can finish it for yourself, but it seems pretty clear that this is going to happen. And so I worked out the equation. I knew enough math to figure that out. And it was 2020. And since I took that class in Bible college, I've always wondered, well, we'll see. And I can tell you, like, from the year 2020, I feel like he got real close, didn't he? Like, we were all on edge for a little bit. But now it's 2022, and some stuff is going down in Europe, and everybody's starting to feel it again. And I draw your attention to that because we get focused on the wrong things and we start entertaining fear as our primary motivation. We look to be self-preserving and at the end of all of that, we look foolish because we forget to be about the things of the kingdom of God and we start somehow believing that we are going to preserve the kingdoms of man that are destined to fail at some point. This morning, we're going to look at God's Word. We're going to frame out um, some cautions for us, and then we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming. He is the soon and coming King. And I don't know when that's going to be, but I know that we're closer to it than we were in 1988, so it's got to be sooner than it was then, because I know at least that much math. You got your Bible? Go ahead and get that out. Lord, we ask that you give us soft hearts to hear from your word, that you would give us courageous hearts to receive it. Lord, that you would give us willing hearts to act on it. Lord, we pray that you would preserve our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, as your word says that you will, that your peace would guard our hearts and minds, that we would not be people who are prone to chase after things that would just tickle our intellect, and that we wouldn't be people who are somehow motivated or pushed by fear but that we would receive your whole and perfect love and that that would be the motivation of the life that we live in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you go to Mark chapter 13, I'm going to highlight some specific parts of this passage. You can read it all on your own in your entirety if you are interested in that. The things that I'm going to look at right now aren't going to be up on the screen. We're going to get to some ones that are going to be some more primary importance. Uh, for our attention this morning, but I do want to begin in Mark chapter 13, because in Mark chapter 13, Jesus sits down with his disciples, and they ask him about the end. They ask him what a lot of people start thinking when they're having this sense that the world is careening into chaos, and things are about to get out of control. They start asking, hey, when is this going to happen? So in Mark chapter 13, as this passage begins, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's leaving the temple and there's all of this opulence, and there's all of, this, all of this beautiful architecture. And one of his disciples comments on it. He says, hey, look at how beautiful this is. And Jesus says, hey, look at this building and those buildings. It's not just look at the temple, but look out from this place 
to this city, and he says this whole thing is going to be leveled, not a stone on top of the other. Okay, not kind of really what they were looking for or what they were hoping to hear, and it sat with them. So a little bit later, they find themselves, uh, they find themselves on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So they're on this hill, and they can still see it, and it's still in the back of their minds. Jesus said, hey, this is all going to go away. What's he talking about here? And so Peter, James, John, and Andrew are, are sitting with him kind of off on their own, and they ask this question. Tell us, when are these things going to happen? Hey, g- give us the inside scoop. Like, how are we going to know this? How are we going to prepare? How are we going to be aware? And then Jesus moves into the rest of this, And he begins with this statement. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still coming. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. And then he moves into describing what it's going to look like to be persecuted for faith. What it's going to be look like to have to suffer for being a follower of Christ. And then in verse 14, he moves on to this phrase that if you've kind of studied some of this stuff, it's going to be one of those buzz phrases. But he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand that it's close. And there's all of these things that they, they kind of point to some things, and it's like, it's, it's kind of, I can kind of understand that, but I kind of don't. And much of the biblical teaching about these things is like that. It's rooted in metaphor. It's rooted in prophecy. It's rooted in describing things that have not happened in a way that the person who has seen it can't actually comprehend it. And so there's all of this like uh, complexity to it, and there's some wild simplicity as well. Verse 21, in this same passage, Jesus says, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, don't believe it, For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. And then verse 26, he says, At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That's describing Jesus' return. And he will send his angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Verse 32, and no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father, so be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know. And when you unpack the whole of that passage, you have... Uh, little nuances and expressions of all the things that I talked about earlier as far as in eschatology. There's references there to what is called the Great Tribulation. It's correlated to a number of other places in Scripture. This idea of the resurrection, the Antichrist, the idea of the rapture, and then the kind of the followers of Jesus kind of being taken up and rescued. All, the, all of those things are kind of there. 
And there's a tendency to start getting lost in the minutia of those details. And I can tell you that if you go to seminary, if you go and pursue a, a degree in theology or an MDiv degree or something like that, you'll dig into all of these things and you'll find that there are varying paths that you can go to to arrive at different conclusions. The idea of the rapture, which is the believers of, of Christ being kind of rescued out of this great tribulation, there's, uh, there's ideas that says this happens before or after it gets really bad. There's actually a new idea out there that says that the rapture doesn't even happen, that the way that it's been understood to this point has been in error. And it's like, so how do you make heads or tails of all of that? This idea of the tribulation, we're all going to go through trials and tribulation, but do we have to go through the big one, right? And how, how do we get out of that? When is the timeline? It's such an interesting thing to actually study, but if you land on a thing that says, I know and you don't, you're going to write a book that says Jesus is coming back in 1988, and you're going to have to write another book in 1989. Because one of the things that you find is in this passage, it says nobody knows the day or the hour. Yeah, but pastor, it does describe what it looks like. It does say that you can discern the times. Sure, absolutely. But if you look at human history, every time the world gets chaotic, people get nervous about this. And it's because they start looking at that and stop looking at Jesus. Can I tell you, keep your eyes on Jesus. The author and the perfecter of your... Keep your eyes on Jesus. See, we get distracted by the wrong things. The day and the hour is unknown. Yes, you should discern the times. But when you land on a place that says, I know the times and I've got the secret because God gave it to me and he's not going to tell it to you, but if you buy my book, you'll have the secret too. Like, man, sniff that out. That sounds silly, doesn't it? The other thing that you find is on two occasions in this passage, Jesus says that there will be those who come and say, it's me, I'm back. Here he is. Oh, he's over there. You got to get there or you're going to miss it. And he says, don't fall for that nonsense. Listen to me, don't fall for nonsense. When Jesus comes back, you will not miss it. You will be surprised. You will be surprised. Okay, but you won't be unaware. You're not going to miss it. If you study church history, there is all kinds of weirdness that happens around these types of topics. When somebody says they've got the inside secret sauce or when somebody says, hey, I'm Jesus incognito. And just in my recent history, in the time that I've been alive in our nation, I've watched the rise and fall of these offshoot cults around a charismatic personality that says, hey, I'm Jesus in disguise. Jesus doesn't disguise himself. And even in the way that it's described here, he's going to come on the clouds in power. You're not going to to miss that. But what you do find is this. In Matthew chapter, or excuse me, Mark chapter 13 and verse 5, 23 and 33, in this whole context of section, it says this. It says, watch out that no one deceives you. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Be on your guard. Be alert. And when we approach this passage as if somehow there's uh, difficulties to be avoided and we're motivated by fear, 
we read this admonishment from Jesus to watch out and to be on our guard to somehow suggest that if we're not paying attention, we're going to miss it and be left out. That somehow that if you're, if you're not watching close enough, Jesus is going to come and go and you're going to be left behind. Maybe some of you have even seen that there was a movie in the 80s, traumatized a bunch of people into getting saved. In our staff meeting this week, we were singing the song from it because we were all church rats back then, and we are, we're still, we're going, we're going to counsel with our care ministry and help repair some of that. But you're not going to miss it. And that's what Jesus is saying. Don't fall into this. He's over here. He's over there. You got to get there. You're going to miss out. Be on your guard. When you start thinking about these things, if your response is motivated by fear, you need to be on your guard. The love of God does not produce fear in your heart. Perfect love casts out all fear. If you uh, uh, are pursuing these types of ideas and you have this puffed up prideful self-assurance, I've figured it out. Everybody else is dumb. It's just me. I'm the only one. Like, be on your guard. Like, you're not that great. Jesus is. When there's a puffed up pride and a self-assurance, be aware of that. When you start looking for sources that speak about these things because you're trying to hear a specific thing that you already have determined you want to hear, it's called having an itching ear is how Scripture describes it. Man, pay attention to that. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, as Paul is shaping Timothy as a young pastor, he says the time is going to come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And can I tell you, that's even more easy to do now when you can just Google whatever you want, and there's all kinds of voices speaking all kinds of nonsense that if your heart is already predisposed to receive, you can find somebody who's going to tell you what you want to hear. Like, stop looking for a voice to scratch your ears and start reading the Word of God. And more importantly than that, allow the Word of God to read you. Begin to allow the Word of God to speak into your life and to respond in a way where you're receiving the living word of God and you're putting it into practice in your life. I, I think that we miss this admonishment from Jesus when we don't carefully read Mark 13. He says, be careful, be alert, be watchful. He repeats that three times. There's nothing else in that passage that's repeated like that. Because we need to be aware of our tendency to become enamored with the wrong focus. Now, I have thoughts and opinions on all of these things. Like, I've, I've studied theology. I've gone through the, the academics. I've gone through the preparation. But I'm more interested in Jesus and what he's doing today, and the hope that his promised return brings than I am with trying to discover out any other individual particular. 
And when we are focused more on the return of Jesus than we are of self-preservation, we'll be more prone to be act doing the work of the kingdom of God than trying to hold up in our house and hoard toilet paper because we're not sure if we're going to make it through the next three months. See, and we can, we can giggle at this, we can laugh at this now, but like we do that. So if we're not purposely intentional about guarding our hearts and our minds and keeping our eyes focused on Jesus, we will respond in fear and we will embrace a lot of nonsense. And at the end of it, we look foolish and we also make him look foolish. But make no mistake, whether he looks foolish or not, whether we create that type of perspective or paradigm or not, he is the king and the king will return. And I want to shift our focus to that because in that truth is our hope, not just for eternity, not just for someday. It's the hope that you and I have for today. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, Jesus is getting ready to spend the last night with his disciples before he is betrayed and before he begins to go to the cross in his eventual death and then resurrection. John chapter 14, 15, and 16 record the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, his last cohesive teaching with them. This is the night that he's betrayed. It's the night that he breaks bread and celebrates Passover and institutes communion. This is the night that he washes the the disciples' feet. All of that is taking place in this room and in this context. And as he begins to teach in that place, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Preparing them for his departure preparing them for him to leave. And they still don't grasp, they still don't understand that it's going to be his death that ushers this in. And so he begins to prepare them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? Rhetorical question. Of course he wouldn't. And so it must be true. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And you know the place that I'm going. And then Thomas speaks and asks the question that we would all ask. It's a similar question to Peter, James, John, and Andrew when they said, hey, where or when is this going to happen? Thomas asked, hey, wait a minute, like, where are you talking about? Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And then he says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back to you. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. I didn't see that on the map, Jesus. How am I supposed to get there? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm the way. You know me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know me. I'm going to get you there. That's what you need to know. And what you find here is he's describing returning for his own. 
Now, again, you can go back into this eschatology and you can have to kind of wrap your head around all of these different concepts of uh, rapture and tribulation and millennium. There's a whole bunch of things in there. But as he makes it very simple, he says this, I'm going, I'm going to prepare a place. I'm coming back for you and you're going to get there because I'm, the, I'm the way. I'm going to get you there. And what you see illustrated in this is that Jesus' return Three things about it. Number one, it's literal. He will literally come back. It's not going to be figurative. It's not, it's not going to be existential. He's going to literally come back. It's going to be personal. He is personally going to come back. He's not just going to send a proxy. And in fact, in his place, as he prepares a place for his, his spirit is present but he's coming back personally and literally. And here's the other thing, visibly. Visibly. It will surprise you, but it will not be in secret. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, when Jesus ascends into heaven, right? It, it records in Scripture him going up, and the disciples do exactly what you and I would do. If somebody did that today, we would stand there like this and we would just be staring up at the sky trying to figure out what's going on, probably with our mouths open. Interesting side note, did you know that domesticated turkeys, when it rains, will stand outside with their heads up and mouth agape and they'll drown? Wild turkeys don't do that, domesticated turkeys do. I don't know what that means, I just find that interesting. I just said way back over here. Most of us would probably be staring at the sky like the domesticated turkey, and we would need a clear day to make sure that we didn't just meet Jesus that day, and we got to wait till the Lord's return. But they're standing there staring at the sky, like wondering what's going on, and an angel comes and basically says, why are you staring at the sky? He will return the same way he went. It's the same way that he describes it in, in Mark 13, that the Son of Man will descend in power and glory on the clouds. Listen to me. It will be personal. It will be literal, but it will be visible. You're not going to miss it. When we start getting worried about the return of Jesus, we've lost focus on Jesus. We're looking at the wrong things. We somehow begin to assume that he's going to do something in secret, and if we're not doing our best to make sure that our head's on a swivel and we're on our toes, that we're going to miss out on what God wants to do in our life. And that is a motivated thought by fear, and that is never, never the voice of God. It's never the Spirit of God. When you feel like you are being driven by fear, and you have to preserve yourself, and you have to somehow keep your own, it's always a work of the entity to pervert the things that God wants to do in your life. You won't miss it. Second thing about Jesus coming as the soon and coming king, and I mentioned this earlier, listen to me, he is already king. Okay, he's not like the king in waiting, and like when he gets back, then he gets to really do some stuff. Jesus is changing lives right now. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And you can look at what's going on in the world, or maybe the world's too big for you, and you're just going to look at your personal life, and you're saying, hey, this is enough chaos 
for me. I can't even handle what's going on in the world. And you can look at that and you can begin to surmise, God, if all of this seems to be out of control, how could you, pot- no, he is king of kings and Lord of lords. And if you invite his lordship into your chaos, you will see order restored. You will see healing. You will see hope. You will see transformation. We see that all the time. That's happening in our church. That's happening in homes of people connected to our church. That's happening in our community. And I tell you, we need to be sharing more of those stories. Building up one another's faith. But he is already king. He is already Lord. And he's going to come back. And everyone and everything and all of creation will recognize it. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's already king. And there will be a moment when all of creation, all of creation will acknowledge that. And it doesn't mean that somehow that gives validity to it. It is already true. But there will be a day where every knee bows and every tongue confesses. And don't get hung up on the way that that is uh, translated into the English where it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, as if at that point it's going to be optional. It will not. He is the one and only King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will not share his throne with another. It's a done deal. And so as things get weird in the world at different times, like the stuff that's going on in the Middle East right now, or not Middle East, well, that too, but in Europe as well. Like right now, people are getting, I find the timing of our series interesting that we get to talk about this topic because people are starting to get unsettled. Man, keep your eyes on Jesus. And he's king, he's Lord, he's good. He's got you. And that gets to the last, the last thought. Okay, Jesus is soon and coming king. Physical, right? Visible, personal return. But before that happens, there's a question for you and I and for those that we come into contact with. Is he your king? Is, is he your Lord? There'll be a time where every knee bows and every tongue confesses, but in the meantime, there's the opportunity to actually do that in a way that salvation is received. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 29, Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. There's all kinds of stories, all kinds of rumors, all kinds of things being spoken about him. As his ministry is being recognized and his lives are being transformed, And on the road, he begins a conversation with his disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? Right? What's the word in the herd? What are people saying about me? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, back from the old, old dead. Some people think you're like a new prophet on the scene. And he entertains all of their rumors and the who's and what's, and then he asked the question, and this is the question. 
Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the one. You're the Lord. You're the King. That question and that truth is what you and I should be about. That when we start to be alerted to a world that is demonstrating chaotic experiences again, and it looks, hey, that looks like Mark 13, I'm freaking out a little bit. Fine, if the clock's ticking and you feel like it's imminent, you need to be out telling people about Jesus instead of stocking up on toilet paper. Like, what are you going to do with that? You need to be about being out and impacting a broken world with the hope of Jesus Christ. See, it was that motivation that caused somebody like Paul to ditch his whole career and to just go from town to town to town starting churches. Being beat, being imprisoned, being talked smack about, all of that stuff. Like, why would he endure that? He had a great job. He had influence. He had, he had all the stuff that in the world you would say, man, he made it. And he ditched it all. Because, hey, Jesus is coming back. And if somebody doesn't tell him, they're not going to know. When we become alerted and reminded that there will be an end, we should be motivated with the gospel. We should be motivated by the hope that we have to share that with somebody else. I've got a friend who pastors in Nebraska, and he's got kind of a mantra for the way that he does ministry, and his, his mantra, his tagline is one more. God, give me one more. See, because Jesus is still at work, he's transforming lives today. He's, he's still doing that, and if he's done that in you, he wants to use you to do that in the life of somebody else. And even if you're not here today, even if you're at home, Jesus is doing that. He's doing that in people's homes. Last week, we had a young lady who just happened to tune in to our live stream. Not a believer, not connected to our church. At the end of her rope, and she was just like, God, if, if you... If you're real, you need to do something in my life. She bumped into our service. She came to church last week, church at home. And by the end of the service, she was on her knees at home, crying out for Jesus to save her. She called in. She made an appointment with one of our care team members who just happened to be up and a part of our message last week, met with them, and she's taking her first steps in her journey with Jesus this week. Right now, Brent, one more. One more. And we got to be part of that, but that was her at home with Jesus. Her at home with Jesus. What could Jesus do through us if we all went out and we were a part of what he was doing? That not only was he meeting with somebody at home who really had a desperate need for him, but he was meeting the people that we were bumping into because we were taking the time to make the introduction. I don't know the timeline. I'm not going to publish a book. 
I know that we're closer than 1988 because we're past 1988. But if the time is short, then we need to be busy about the work of the kingdom and not busy about trying to preserve our own. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Church family, worship team, if you would come back forward. You may not be familiar with all the words that we kind of kicked around this morning. You may not really care about eschatology. You may not have anything to do with that stuff. You may not understand any of the, the signs or the things that you're reading in Scripture, or even be aware that they're there. Or you may be somebody who's put a lot of effort, put a lot of energy into kind of unpacking these things. But regardless of where you are, what, this is what I do know. I know that you can know the way, the truth, and the life. I know that you can meet Jesus. I know that he can change your life. And I know that you can be a part of introducing him to somebody else. And knowing that the time is short, what if we responded with an urgency to share our hope? What if, what if we were motivated to move in a way where we shared our hope with others. Lord, we ask that you would guard our hearts and our minds. Lord, when things get chaotic and uncertain, and when we start to see things in your word that, that uh, describe the times that we're in, Lord, it's easy for us to begin to be motivated by fear instead of your love for us in this world. It can be easy for us to be motivated by pride. It can be easy for us to be motivated by self-preservation. It can be easy for us to begin to, to look for voices that would scratch our itching ears to tell us what we want to hear. Lord, we can get distracted by so many things. Would you keep our eyes on you? Holy Spirit, would you draw our gaze back to the face of Jesus? Lord, that we would be more concerned about the return of Christ than we are about who the Antichrist might be. Lord, that we would be more uh, uh, aware of the opportunities that are presented by life situations that are chaotic. Lord, that we would be more, uh, in, we would do more in preparing to be used by you to be agents of change in this world than to somehow hide away from it or escape it. Lord, orient us towards you. Lord, we ask that you would move in our lives this week, that we would embrace the hope that is ours in Christ, that that would motivate us to faith, and that we would move in response to be about your kingdom. Lord, that we would be willing to endure hardship, not for hardship's sake, but for the sake of one more. Lord, that you would give us willing hearts, active hands and feet and minds and mouths, Lord, to go out and to share the good news of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that even when someone is alone in their home crying out desperately for you, that you can meet them in that place and bring about salvation, that you can bring about newness of life. We celebrate that. 
So in whatever time is left, Lord, let us be filled with faith, filled with courage, and busy about your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Action steps for you this week. If you've got a smartphone or your tablet, you can go ahead and take, take a picture of this. I'd encourage you to do that. But if considering that the time is short, surrender every area of your life to Jesus as Lord. He is Lord. Allow him to do that. Number two, walk in the confidence that he is good. And then number three, share that hope with somebody else this week.